Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Normal wage earning women every day, every week, work two shifts. One where they're paid on average three quarters of the male wage and one at home where they're paid nothing. For an average 72 hours of work, women get around 40 hours worth of money. Then they go home and do about 32 hours for free. This is Normal Women Are Underpaid. I'm Philippa Gregory, and this podcast is drawn from my research for my new book, Normal Women, 900 Years of Making History, looking at the history of women's lives in England. And today I'm with Edwina Dunn, data scientist and founder of The Female Lead, a charity that empowers women and listens to women and has 8 million followers on social media. Her new book, When She's in the Room, comes out in March. Also with me is Professor Jane Humphreys from the University of Oxford and London School of Economics. Jane is an economic historian and together we'll be looking at women's working lives now and in the past. So Jane, the first, the big question, have women always been underpaid? Yes, maybe slightly better in some times and in some jobs than in others, but they've never been able to claim the same kinds of rewards as men. And of course, the uh, big question is why? Um, why? Why are they underpaid? And do um, you have an answer to the big question why? Uh, no, uh, I don't. Economic historians have got a variety of answers, you know, that range from ideology to upper body strength to having babies to patriarchal oppression, um, to lack of skills, to undereducation. You can pick and choose these different explanations. They fit different circumstances. And I don't think any one in particular stands up on its own. And some of them are surely out of date. I mean, upper body strength in a society which is increasingly mechanised can't plan with women getting um, increasingly equal education. Surely we should be already in a situation of equal pay, Edwina? Mm. Well, we should be, but we're not. And one of the things that I've always tried to uncover is the danger of averages. And actually, there are parts of the UK where women are paid more than men, but they tend to be the ones that have suffered from changes in falling industries where women have stepped forward, I suppose, to to support the family and they come forward and, and they do that. But we've also seen that the pay gap increases with age. So the overall pay gap between men and women in the UK varies by 14.9%. But actually, although women and men 
earn at pretty much the same rate in the beginning. By the time women are between 50 and 59, it's as big as 20%. I mean, going back a long time, there's a golden date, which economists and historians almost cherish. We've got one date when in 1348, the Black Death had spread through England, halving the population, and so there was this fantastic shortage of labourers. Animals died in the field because there was nobody to bring them in. Food crops rotted where they were. Everybody was desperate for workers, and for a very, very brief period of time, women were paid the same as men. Casual women workers were paid the same as casual men workers. Jane? Uh, It's true, it's the golden age of the English peasantry. At least 45, 65% of the population perish. So you can imagine the effects of this on the labour market. The workers' bargaining power is um, massively enhanced. So that women who could take advantage of this tight labour market did very well out of this. And it's true, the pay gap narrows. But um, some of my work with Jacob Weisdorf shows that Women who were on annual contracts, younger women, less empowered women, who weren't working with their husbands or their fathers and able to take advantage of the opportunities, those younger women remained really rather um, constrained in the labour market and they didn't do as well. Even in the golden age, it didn't glitter quite as brightly um, for these younger women who were less mobile. They couldn't take advantage of the casual job opportunities. There's a big pushback in really uh, almost as soon as women start getting to a position where they're in some circumstances earning equal pay. There's a pushback by the government, but the government's made up, of course, of the very people who are landlords and employers. It's the Ordinance of Labourers Act in 1349. Because a great part of the people, and especially of workmen and servants, late died of the pestilence, Many feeling the great scarcity of servants will not serve unless they may receive excessive wages, and some rather willing to beg in idleness than by labour to get their living. It's an openly anti-worker law. There's a shortage of workers, and those workers who have survived the epidemic are now demanding good wages. So the employers get together and they pass a law which limits wages and forbids people from moving from one employer to another or out of one area under a lord employer's control to another one. It's especially hard on single women. They were treated with suspicion if they were mobile, um, if they tried to change jobs. They were masterless women, and that was something to be afraid of. The oppressive reaction of the state through the Statute of Labourers probably bore down more firmly on these women than on the married women who could work in many production teams with their, with their husbands and take advantage of the new opportunities. Edwina, we've just emerged from another pandemic. Did COVID also change the way people were paid and the way the opportunities opened to women? Mm. Women not only step back to look after the family and to do more unpaid hours. But actually, they took on more of the mental load. So more worry about, you know, how are we going to do this? How are we juggling everything that needs to happen? So I think it was a a very bad impact on women, the whole 
situation with COVID, and I think it's been slow to recover. You know, working from home as well, which, you know, initially is very much welcomed as flexible working, has meant that women, you know, are doing lots of jobs while they're working. They're putting the washing on and they're ordering the groceries and they're worrying about who picks up the children and they're doing the tasks, but they are unseen in the office and still more unseen because they're using the time to double down on the unpaid work. And by contrast, we're seeing that pursuits like golf are on the rise. (laughs) Are you suggesting that men uh, post-COVID are taking more leisure time and women post-COVID are working harder? I think they're both being opportunistic with what is front of mind for them. And, you know, for men, golf has always been networking. And, you know, they're probably strengthening a lot of their positions in the office and with colleagues. And women are disappearing behind the screen and doing the tasks that are essentially unpaid. It was very interesting what Edwina just said, because we did some work on coal miners' wives in the late 19th century, early 20th century. And of course, these were very much one of the early stay-at-home wives. They were the very low female participation rates in the labor market in coal mining districts. So um, we got some lovely autobiographical material where men would say things like, best job in the world uh, for our lass, you know, she's st- at home all day. And then we worked on the women's autobiographies and their statements before things like um, royal commissions. And of course, we found out they were doing 70 hours a week of work, wow. a lot of which was not necessarily just for the family, but was for the coal company because they were maintaining the miners' kit, they were helping wash him, they were doing extraordinary amounts of laundry associated with industrial filth. And as a result, they were working longer hours than their husbands. Amazing. And in fact, you can actually see the effects of this too on morbidity and mortality because miners' wives actually had less good health than many miners. So this displacement of labor really is historically very significant as well. A really good example there of something that looks like women doing something for their husbands, doing it unpaid for love, as we would say, but it's actually work for the company, washing the men themselves, cleaning their kit, doing domestically what should have been done at the pit head. When women are working at home, they're still doing work of economic value. I believe that all government intervention into the labour market is always designed to cut wages. And the state and the employers find it easiest to cut women's wages. I want to take us back in time again to Elizabethan England, when with a woman on the throne, the laws against workers intensified and women were especially singled out. In the time of hay or corn harvest, the justices of peace and also the constable or other head officer of every township shall and may cause all persons as be meet to labour to serve by the day for the mowing, reaping, shearing, getting or inning of corn, grain and hay. And that none of the said persons shall refuse so to do upon pain to suffer imprisonment in the stocks 
by the space of two days and one night. This is the Statute of Artificers 1563, a law which put legal controls on workers. Now, no working people, not even women working in their own homes, are allowed to work for themselves. Everyone has to bring in the harvest and will be put in the stocks if they refuse. And there's a new special burden put on single women in particular. They have to work for an employer all the year round. And be it further enacted that two justices of peace, the mayor of any city, borough or town corporate, and two aldermen shall and may appoint any such woman of the age of 12 years and under the age of 40 years and unmarried be retained or serve by the year or by the week or day for such wages as they shall think meet. She cannot refuse the work or demand more wages. If any such woman shall refuse so to serve, then it shall be lawful for the said justices of peace, mayor or head officers, to commit such woman to ward until she shall be bounden to serve as aforesaid. There isn't two days in the stocks like the punishment for striking men. For women, it's prison until she agrees to go to an employer. And any landowner could order any poor person to be their apprentice to work for them for free. This was a form of servitude. The apprentice got no pay but their bed and board and training. And after seven years of this, an apprentice boy or girl might come out as a master craftsman or a craftswoman. But some young women were simply worked for free. They were apprenticed to the skill of housekeeping, which, of course, they knew anyway. Nothing more than they would have learned at home with their mother. They got no training in any trade. They got no wages for seven years, and there was no escape. Edwina, you look shocked, but, you know, this is the 16th century, but, I mean, it was a sort of slavery. It is shocking, but the reality is today women contribute £262 billion of unpaid work that, that isn't noted and it isn't presented in any authoritative guide for women's role. But if you think about it, it's not just women looking after the house, women looking after children. It's who looks after elderly dependents. And actually, it's lifelong. The minute your children grow up, you're looking after elderly parents. So, And then on top of that, you've got women who are very much encouraged towards the caring roles, the caring jobs, which are the lowest paid. So um, 85% of childcare workers are female and 75% of adult care workers are female. So the bias, it's not servitude, but it's still the lower paid or unpaid echelons. Yes, feminist economists have long argued that this work should be valued and counted in national income statistics. Right. And of course, we do impute values to many other unpaid activities. Um, but there's been resistance to really including domestic work, childcare, um, these kinds of tasks, which are, of course, very female intensive. And it's really interesting because we've been talking really about women as citizens and as employees. But if we think about women as consumers, which has been my sort of career work, women as consumers are the power force. 
And this is the anomaly because women make 70% plus of all buying decisions all over the world. And so women are the powerhouse. You know, business leaders could ask a man what they think, or they could ask a decision maker, which is the woman. And they don't. I'm really interested in what you're saying. Obviously, what you're talking about is an extraordinary amount of power in a consumer culture. And I'm trying to figure out all on my own here in my own mind, whereas I could just ask you, Jane, why is it that power is not associated with purchase? Is it because women are associated with purchase? So nobody wants to know what women think anyway. Or is it because actually in a capitalist society, it's who makes the money that counts. It's not who spends it. I think sometimes the the responsibility of spending is a burden. So certainly historically, this is the case. When you're managing a budget that is barely sufficient and it's your responsibility, then it becomes a task. So it's another of those tasks that falls on women. It's just another job that women do without being paid, which up until presumably, if you up until roundabout now, we have been thinking when we talk about consumer power as if it was a privilege, as if it was an advantage to us, but it isn't. It's just another job we're doing for free. And is everything that we do just another job and burden? If we're not paid to do it, then it is, of course. Some jobs are burdens that we take on willingly, and we do indeed do them for love. But for sure, I see in history, when women find a job that pays us well, almost immediately men move into it. An occupation that is pretty exclusive to women as consumers and producers, like hats, millinery, comes to be profitable in the 18th century when bonnets are such a big fashion statement. And more, women want them professionally made. Here is Anne, a milliner in Oxford in 1772. She's immediately faced with fees to be a freeman of the city, although a son of a freeman would inherit freeman status and could trade. She's forced to join a company for a fee that will bankrupt her. I am an Oxford milliner. My father had been the mayor more than once and the family's finances had suffered from the expense of office. To support myself, I set up as a milliner and was just becoming established when informed by the authority of the city and the order of one of their companies, I think he calls them the Mercers, but so much more properly the Merciless Company, threatening me with an immediate distress if I do not leave off my business or purchase a freedom of the company, which would cost about £20 a sum almost equal to the whole I possess, and which money they would most probably use in oppressing other distressed objects like myself, or spending in luxurious entertainments where it is not customary or indeed decent for a female to appear. Should not the daughter receive as much advantage as the son of a freeman? Should not the daughter, who is more helpless and cannot by any means be made free, have the privilege of following such business as the general laws of the kingdom admit, without a freedom? 
There are many examples of women being excluded from marketplaces where they can't get licenses to sell their goods, from the guilds, from the professions, from the trades, even because a woman doesn't have a legal name. She can't apply to a bank for a loan or a mortgage. So if she's got a successful business, she can't capitalize it and expand it, which is one of the things that drove women out of the ale business uh, when it became beer and it needed hops and bigger breweries and transport to run. I mean, is there any is there any trade or craft that you can think of that women moved into and made a profitable success out of without having male men coming in and pushing them out as soon as they'd made a go of it? Well, we might think about prostitution. But, um, <laughs> but I was also thinking when we heard from our milliner about spinning because hand spinning was the biggest craft job for women. And probably, according to recent estimates, something like maybe 20% by 1770 of women and children are working at least for part of the year in hand spinning. And it's not well paid, but it helps. It's, it's often done in wintertime, so it can be fitted around some other agricultural tasks, for example. But the interesting thing, of course, about hand spinning is that machines move in and we get the jenny and then the mule um, and then the uh, water frame and spinning factories. And it's an amazing story because within 50 years, this job is dramatically lost for women. This is probably the biggest technological shock in, the, in British history. And we, it's, it's nev it never appears in our textbooks. And we might well want to, to think about the effects of this in terms of the empowerment of women and the creation of that male breadwinner model, you know, which so dominates historiography and so dominates our ideology today. You know, that out of that loss of work came dependence. Mm. And out of the visibility of the dependence comes a whole rhetoric about female helplessness that not only do women apparently not work because they're all working terribly hard but invisibly but also that women can't work uh, this is W.R. Gregg in 1869 Those wild schemers who would throw open the professions to women and teach them to become lawyers and physicians and professors know little of life and less of physiology the brain and the frame of woman are formed with admirable suitability to their appropriate work, for which subtlety and sensitiveness, not strength and tenacity of fibre, are required. The cerebral organisation of the female is far more delicate than that of the man. The continuity and severity of application needed to acquire real mastery in any profession or over any science are denied to women and can never with impunity be attempted by them. Mind and health would almost invariably break down under the task. I, I know. I have to say, you're both looking at me. It's not my fault. This is W.R. Gregg in 1869. He is, I mean, he observes the world around him and he does not see all of the women laboring mm -hmm. as hard as men. He does not see. I mean, Dorothy George mm -hmm. says um, in the same century that it can almost be said there is no work too heavy or disagreeable to be done by women, provided it is also ill-paid. You know, women are lifting nothing lighter than men except their paycheck, mm -hmm. you know, and, <laughs> as we have always done. 
That's a very, very good quote. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. The journalist Henry Mayhew watched a male dust collector in the East End of London in 1840. Shoveling the sifted soil from one of the lesser heaps and by a great effort of strength and activity, pitching each shovelful to the top of a lofty mound, somewhat resembling a pyramid. Opposite to him stood a little woman, stoutly made and with her arms bare above the elbow. She was his partner in the work and was pitching shovelful for shovelful with him to the summit of the heap. She wore an old soiled cotton gown, open in the front and tucked up behind in the fashion of the last century. She had clouts of old rags tied around her ankles to prevent the dust from getting into her shoes, a sort of coarse towel fastened in front for an apron, and a red handkerchief bound tightly round her head. In this trim, she worked her way, and not only kept pace with the man, but often threw two shovels for his one, although he was a tall, powerful fellow. Jane, it's so ironic, isn't it, that at the time when people are defining ladies as frail and fragile, that women are labouring, indeed slaving, in the most filthy, disagreeable jobs. Yes, this is reminding me, the Savoy Hospital, when they were looking after men who'd been injured in the Civil War and the Interregnum, they employed one, the, the bedridden were, were provided with close stools by the sides of their beds and hemp for hygienic purposes. And they employed one Goody Swain to empty all the clothes stools that were in use twice a day, seven days a week, and they paid her two shillings um, for her labour. Now, that kind of labour is, of course, hidden. You only find little hints, glimpses of this in, in account books and so on. But this was being done throughout society. It's a scary thought that this has happened all the way through history. And... You know, my efforts for empowerment of women in the light of what you've been saying feel sort of slightly feeble because, you know, actually, can we change it? You know, I'm looking at the fact that everybody now wants people with STEM qualifications, science, technology, engineering and maths, and we want more and more women to come into those subjects because we have a shortfall one wonders, even if we attract them, what will happen ultimately um, with the good and the less good STEM jobs because the inevitability seems that women will end up with the lower paid versions of those roles. And pay falls when women move into occupations too, by and large. I mean, we've seen this with medicine, for example. Coming up after the break... The invention of the breadwinner wage. You'll be amazed to hear it's not a bonus for women. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Philippa Gregory. This is Normal Women Are Underpaid. With me today are the historian Jane Humphreys and Edwina Dunn, data scientist and founder of The Female Lead. By the 19th century, the Industrial Revolution was transforming Britain. Political scientists, people we would now call economists, talked about a breadwinner wage, a rate of pay enough for one worker to support a family, feeding children and supporting a partner at home to raise them and keep the house. Working women supported the idea of a living wage for men. In 1840, the Female Political Union of Newcastle said, Is it not true that the interests of our fathers, husbands and brothers ought to be ours? If they are oppressed and impoverished, do we not share those evils with them? Then, women discovered that the breadwinner wage was a code. It meant male wage. Single men, without a family, got it. Women did not, not even mothers with children, widows or single women supporting a family. It was not a way of keeping families from starvation. It was a way to conceal the favouring of men. There was so much concern during the Industrial Revolution that women's wages were so much less than men's that the government set up a committee to discover why that should be. And they found the reason. A parliamentary committee set up to explore the wage gap in 1840 heard from a handloom weaver from Stockport. Joseph Sherwin usually earned six shillings and sixpence a week from weaving at his loom. And his wife earned three shillings a week by winding the bobbins for him and two other looms. Mrs. Sherwin was paid threepence out of every one shilling earned by each of the two weavers who hired her services. So they each earned only ninepence for every one shilling's worth of cloth. Joseph Sherwin admitted, I must pay threepence out of every shilling if I had no wife. If he had paid his wife threepence for every shilling he made, they would all have earned the same amount. The two weavers would have paid Mrs. Sherwin threepence for every shilling of cloth, and so would her husband. They would all have earned ninepence. Mr. Sherwin's true wage was four shillings and tenpence, and his wife's true wage was four shillings, sevenpence halfpenny. What by his statement appeared to be a wage ratio of 0.46 three shillings divided by six shillings and sixpence, turns out to be, in truth, almost equal wages. If the wage data that we have overstate male earnings and understate female earnings, then there may be no wage gap to explain. 
Hurrah! The 1840 committee set up to explain unequal pay discovered the great secret. Mrs Sherwin earned less than Mr Sherwin because her husband paid her nothing. (laughs) This is not an example of the breadwinner wage favouring men. It's even worse. Mr Sherwin is not to be condemned for treating his wife's work like slave labour. It was a commonplace that women working in the family business did not draw a wage or even their expenses. It's true even today, isn't it, that women working in the family business do not get even a fair share of the profits? No, I mean, you know, I remember when when my husband and I set up our business. I remember when we used to tell people about, you know, we work together. They'd get that very funny look come over their face and they would look at me and say, do you do the books for him? And at the time, I was the CEO of this business, and I I didn't really know how to answer it. It was just that really strong bias that women were just there to support and not actually do a proper job. And what date was that, and what was that business? So this was around the 1990s and uh, mid-1990s to 2000s. And um, we were a pioneering data and technology company, Dunhumby, and we were given this wonderful, exciting job of launching Tesco Clubcard. And um, it transformed the future with Tesco. They doubled their market share in less than three years. So a global, massive database business. Yes, you know, the business grew to a billion-dollar business, and I was seen as helping my husband do the books. You didn't say, no, I just bring him the tea. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, do you know, I was just speechless. I suppose I, I grew up believing that you could do more and that you would be seen and heard. And, you know, a few decades on... I just don't see it. And I don't know the words or the language to find to change it. We do have this back and forth, don't we? Because the the first big mid-Victorian censuses, the first big censuses that took place in Britain, the organisers of those censuses recognised women's work in certain occupations. So the wives of men in certain occupations were counted as economically active by dint this is the phrase they use, by dint of their husband's occupation. So you, ones you might expect, farmers and graziers, and but ones you, and innkeepers, you know, where you might say, okay, yes, it's clear. But later in the 19th century, the organisers of the census said, oh, we can't have this. This is, this is, you know, counting these women as economically active just because they're married to these men. And they took them all out. In 1871... of women in England are counted as being employed in work. But the 1881 census decided that since domestic work was done by, quotes, ladies in the privacy of their own homes, unpaid, it couldn't really be called work. The ladylike wives and daughters were not to be categorised as domestic labourers. But 10 years on, the civil servants planning the 1891 census had another change of mind. They saw that hard work was done even in the most upper-crust households by ladies working alongside paid servants doing the same tasks, and since the servants were definitely working in paid work, 
The nature of daily occupations of such persons being thus evident, they would be properly reckoned in domestic service. Good Lord, good Lord, no. Of course, the daughters, sisters and wives of gentlemen could not be listed like maidservants in domestic service. A change had to be made to maintain the illusion that women like this were leisured. So in 1901, the census office announced... We came to the conclusion that on the whole it would be better to revert. By 1911, only 10% of wives were recorded as working as compared to 70% of single women. Women's work in their homes remained as arduous as ever, but it was never again called work. Women of all classes were expected to help their husbands, and this invisible work was so widely understood that many posts were given to men in the knowledge that their wives would work for them, unpaid. Schoolmasters' wives worked as matrons, doctors' wives, as receptionists. Vicars' wives did pastoral care, management wives did admin. But even family businesses founded on women's money were not run by the women who owned them. Women were not seen as active partners in the company, even if they were running it from inside their home. You don't get Dombey and Daughters, like the Dickens novel Dombey and Sons. But you see it even today. You're seeing women being appointed to boards. You're seeing them get this quota of women in authority in companies of every type. But the interesting thing is if you look at the, the, the power, which is the shareholding, women have about 1% of the shareholding in every business right across the board. So they're being put into positions of seniority, but with no power. Even in the 20th century, better educated women who might have wanted to enter professions after the war were encouraged to return to the home and work for free there. There was a post-war desire to turn to the imaginary happy time of men at work and women running the home. The post-war government needed to cut down on costly unemployment. The new light industries persuaded women to stay home and buy domestic equipment, and the new childcare advisers swore that babies must have the undivided attention of one parent, the mother, in order to thrive. The exacting job is skimped at one's peril. Childcare expert... John Balby. But how should these university-educated women be satisfied with cooking and cleaning unpaid? It should be called domestic science. It should be done with complicated equipment. It should be done to a higher standard than ever before. This dream house you and I will share was planned for us by Frigidaire. I really can't believe my eyes in every room surprise. Aladdin's lamp has had its day. This modern magic is here, here to stay. Oh, let's have a housewarming. And women were required also to be good wives, to keep their looks, to be neither depressed nor exhausted by their household work. I'm taking a day off, a rest, a day away from cooking and cleaning and all the other chores that keep a housewife running around from one day's end to the next. 
Too many women never take a day off and just look at them. They're like pieces of cloth that have been soaked in housework and never properly wrung out. I don't want to be like that. I want to get the wrinkles out of this brow before they become permanent. One of the things that I've been looking at is what is happiness? What is fulfillment, which is more important than happiness to women? And every woman will say it's a work-life balance. Mm. And how do you juggle that? I'm fascinated to understand what does good look like for women today? Because the burden of perfectionism is tilting them towards doing everything. We all know doing everything doesn't work. Are women engaged in a quest for perfection? Jane, like the coal miner wives that you were describing earlier, was there a degree of pride and self-satisfaction about working so very hard and supporting the family? Yes, I think there was. But I think that that itself had um, kind of downsides so that women, in fact, invented other tasks that they could do just to show how valuable and important and, and they were. So children would say things like, he never lifted a hand in the household. He never had to wait for his dinner. My mother, you know, was there all the time. And then, of course, women begin to fetishize domestic labor too. So you get chalking the step, you know, the white lace curtains in, in conditions, you know, where they're white for about 30 seconds before they're <laughs> filthy again. And the work-life balance for women so often means work when you're paid and you're out at work and life when you're working for free at home. Yes. You know, and at the moment, even now, uh, women who are in work do double the housework yes. of their husbands yes. who are in work. Um, women who work full-time contribute 75 to 85% of the time that yeah. the couples generally do to the house. As a husband's income increases the wife's home responsibilities increase. She works more when he gets paid more, which you would think was fair enough. When she earns more than he does, she still works harder. She yeah. still does more than he does. And I think that's partly as a sort of gesture of compensation, which is like, I am earning more yes, than you, yes. but I don't want you to feel like I have turned you into my wife, yes. or do we mean into my servant? Mm. Yeah, well, it is that guilt factor that comes into play, isn't it? Which is, am I am I fully a wife mm. if I'm working? Or am I fully a mother? It, oh, even, even more, more debilitating. Yes. Absolutely. In 2010, thousands of women took legal action against Birmingham City Council, women such as catering staff and teaching assistants who'd missed out on bonuses paid to men doing comparable work. Well, this is devastating news for Birmingham taxpayers here, where the Labour administration have had to declare that they're effectively bankrupt because of their failure to deliver proper accounts for the last three years and a failure to get to a grips with their equal pay mess. This is Adele Robinson reporting for Sky News. Vera worked for Birmingham City Council for 11 years and was paid thousands of pounds less than male co-workers. And it became as quite a shock to think that they were getting so much more than us and yet we were all on the same grade. Presumably we should have been getting the same. 
but we weren't. She's one woman out of many who say they were excluded from bonuses handed out to men. At Birmingham City Council in 2004, some female cleaners would have been on a salary of £10,800, a male on the same pay grade, 16300 Further up the pay scale, some female care assistants would have been paid 11600 a year and on the same wage grade, a male, 32000 Are we actually saying that our society can't afford to pay women equally to men? I mean, Birmingham City Council goes bankrupt when they try to do that, all right, it's historic arrears, but what are we saying? That the only way we can run a successful capitalist society is if we have half of the potential labour force, half of the population, either underpaid or working for free. Well, remember that the value of domestic labour that we said that a while back is about 60% of GDP, according to some estimates, you know, 40 to 60%. So that is a, a huge extra amount of remuneration that if we think. Um, but I think probably even more important than actual remuneration is recognition. Mm. Because then that has all kinds of implications, you know, as Edwina's pointed out, for empowerment, um, for happiness, yes. for satisfaction, and for what you get paid in the labour market as well. I think that recognition... It is so important in, in our society today because I think, you know, we can see that our young people are struggling with self-confidence, self-belief and sort of mental health because of these fierce comparisons mm. they're seeing across social media. And, you know, we all want to know what is our place in society? What are the things that we can expect and look forward to? So having recognition and an absolute clarity in those, I think, would go an awfully long way. And that might also lead to more equal sharing of these tasks between men and women, which, of course, would be actually another valuable step forward. Might be bad for golf. <laughs> no, because women might take up golf. Indeed, why not? <laughs> Equality on the tee. Edwina Dunn, Jane Humphreys, thank you very, very much for being with me today. It's been great fun. It's been very good. Thank you. In the next episode on the Normal Women podcast, Normal Women Think About Rape. To understand the widespread acceptance of rape in our society, I'll be joined by historian Joanna Burke, an academic expert on sex and sex crime, and Somasara, an anti-rape activist and founder of the online platform Everyone's Invited. All of the themes explored in this series can be found in my book, Normal Women, 900 Years of Making History. And if you've enjoyed this episode... Please tell the normal women in your life about it. Hope you'll be joining me soon. Normal Women, 900 Years of Making History, published by William Collins, is also available as an audiobook. There are links to both in the show notes. The Normal Women podcast was written and presented by me, Philippa Gregory, and features the voice talents of Claire Corbett, James Good, 
Melanie Gutteridge and Rufus Wright and includes original music composed by Juliet Pochin. The producer is Julia Johnson. The executive producer is Kate Ford and sound design is by Tom Birchall. The commissioning editor for William Collins is Arabella Pike. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.